and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. This is Indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined in the studio by Phil Corman, who is the executive director of CESA, a community involved in sustaining agriculture, our local heroes. Phil Corman, I would appreciate your perspective on the devastating floods that have occurred here in the last two weeks. What has happened to agriculture? What has happened to the farmers that you are dealing with? How serious is this? I would really appreciate your perspective. And at the beginning of that answer, spend 30 seconds for our listeners who don't know and tell us what CESA is. So thank you. Uh, CESA stands for Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture. We've been around for 30 years and we work with over 250 farms in Hampshire, Hamden, and Franklin counties. And um, this is probably worse than Hurricane Irene for a big reason, which is uh, Hurricane Irene occurred in the beginning of October. Most farms had harvested most of their crops. This, these rains and flooding have occurred right at the height of the summer harvest season. So we know at a minimum that over 75 farms have been impacted, over 2,000 acres of crops, and over 12 to $15 million in losses that are just going to increase as the season goes on. Those losses, those numbers, and numbers do tend to make people's eyes glaze over because it's hard to sure. attach them to something. What do they mean for the farmers, and what do they mean for consumers? So I think, uh, you know, and I should point I out— I mean, it sounds like an awful lot of money. It's Well, it's an awful lot of money for a lot of small farms, and even our big farms here in the Valley are, are small farms compared to the— national farming scene, and monoculture, corporate agriculture. Um, so I think as consumers, we'll see some differences. I mean, already we know uh, we're not... Let me step back. There were two other disasters that happened in this calendar year. In February, we lost all of our peach crop throughout New England. And on May 18th, there was another freeze that affected our berry crop and also our, our stone fruit crop. So yes, we'll see apples. We won't see as many pears unlikely, cherries no, so on and on. And those crops are really important for orchards, obviously, because that's what they grow. And also they're important to us as consumers because they're so fresh in the season and so tasty, and it's what we delight in and look forward to. But we're going to have losses around uh, produce. Um, we're going to see dairy farms impacted somewhat because uh, – hay is, may not get in as many cuts, and the hay that was standing in the fields got probably contaminated with river pollutants. So it's just a huge mess. It's so discouraging, and it's such a financial impact on farms. Is this going to impact farmers in the long term, or is this, I don't want to use the word just, but is this a one-year phenomenon? They're going to have a bad year and things will go back to normal more or less after this? Or is there more of a long-term detrimental impact? So I've been thinking about the term, the new normal with climate change. And I think what's a downer about <laughs> climate change is we have no idea how much worse it will continue to get when we haven't modified human behavior on the planet to slow it down. So we don't know. I mean, we've had this emergency farm fund providing no interest loans open since 2012 in Hurricane Irene, and I feel like it's becoming a track record of farm 
natural weather disasters. And I remember when you started that farm loan no interest program, and I remember talking to you about it on the show, and my memory is, oh, well, this is just an emergency. We'll take care of it. It'll be, it will be around here for a year or so. Maybe that's what will be needed. And now it seems like it's a permanent or semi-permanent fixture, which is farms are being hit year after year with one disaster after the next. Your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it's more frequent. I think it's more unpredictable. This is the third year where we either had a drought or a deluge and we're only and a freeze and we're only up to, you know, July 20th. Um, I think uh, the focus right now among state and federal government and farm advocates is keep farms going by getting as much grant monies to them. Loans are secondary and may be needed, so even CESA's emergency farm fund at no interest is a useful tool, but we're going to be strongly advocating for grant monies. In other words, state support of farms. State support of farms. Yeah, Buzz. Yeah, Phil Corman. I, I, I I think I've said it three or four times on the air, but I keep hearing about how the difference between a deluge damage and a drought damage, drought is that year's harvest. It's devastating for that year. But when your topsoil is being washed away, replacing that is a monumental task, and it requires uh, resources, really serious. Have you heard much about people, uh, farmers, our local heroes, saying to you, boy, we've lost our ability to grow next year as well? I haven't heard anyone say I'm hanging up my hat. (laughs) But I think, you know, we do have an aging farming population throughout the country and in Massachusetts, and it does give serious pause to some farmers. I think the big question that all farms are going to have, and they've had since Irene perhaps, is should I still, what should I be planting and where should I plant it? And getting uh, real professional opinions on floodplains and frequencies in a changing environment. So that's what might change. I think we don't yet know the full damage. When I saw farmers this week, uh, a lot of farmers still hadn't been able to get on their farmland because it was still too wet. So they're, they're not even sure how bad some of the damage is. And just one other question for you, Phil, which is uh, what about the members of CESA? What about people who are consumers and rely on that farm-to-table supply? Yeah. So... I think um, you're seeing situations where, again, we always encourage farms to be transparent about how they grow and where they source. So the Tuesday market in Northampton has been transparent that they were bringing peaches in from New Jersey. So that will happen. And again, if people remember back to COVID, the local food system stepped up for when the national food system broke down. Um, And again, we're impacted also by in Vermont. And so if I'm running a dairy farm or I have uh, cattle, to get feed for my cattle, often if you can't get it maybe in Western Mass because of some disaster, you may look to Vermont and you can't right now. Maybe we'll have to look to New York or Pennsylvania. So costs are going to increase. Harvests will decrease. My hope is that um, we do have some amazing leadership happening in the private sector and the state and federal sectors. And I'm hoping that we can get the resources farms need to continue ASAP. With regard to those resources, Phil, you just mentioned the word grants. What does that mean? So there is, uh, the governor is going to announce today, and I'm not going to get ahead of the governor, but 
there was a meeting we had this week among um, nonprofits and foundations and companies and uh, state elected officials about setting up a public-private uh, partnership that will involve the United Way of Worcester. And that will be a quick way, I hope, that um, people will be able to take their commitment to local farms and, and their empathy and help us turn around resources. And I can't, and I can't say more about that. You can't say more about I that. I can't say more <clears throat> about that because... It's not my place. <laughs> uh, okay, but we can try to ask. You can ask, <laughs> sure. We can. That, that's our job. Your job may be to say well, no comment. But in that regard, yes. I, I did hear just before we came on the air that you, in fact, will be uh, uh, playing with the governor today. I understand a strong game of horse or hoops of some sort. Yes? No, no. That was— No, you're just so, kidding. So the governor—let me say this. This governor actually— But you will be with the governor I, today. Along with many, 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 many people. Okay. The governor is making two stops today. One is at—I um, believe it's 11 o'clock at Fred, Fred, Fair Fruit Supermarket in Chicopee to announce the Food Security Infrastructure Grant Awards— and that was a program that came out of our last crisis, last plague, which is still a little bit with us, for sure, which is the pandemic and COVID. And out of that came the notion we need to build up our food infrastructure to build up our state food system. So that's really important news. And to see a supermarket that is independently owned and committed to getting food to the most needy in their community it's a great place for the governor to make that announcement. And then at 12.30 at Mountain View Farm, the governor will be making an announcement with details about this public-private initiative. Oh, very, very exciting. Thank you for working on it. I'd like to know uh, what you suggest that people who are rightfully concerned about this enormous, enormous consequence to our farmers and the valley— is there something that we meaningfully can do? So I, I do want to say this. I am hopeful <laughs> that uh, humanity as a whole can step up and make a difference and keep uh, handing off resources and our planet to the next generations. And I think all of us uh, need to think that way. So um, Could you stop there for a second? Because sure. I appreciate this for half a minute. It feels like there's an apocalypse going on between the fires and the rains and the and the ice caps melting and the flooding and it goes on and on and on. The smoke in the air, the uh, dis destruction of habitat, of forests in Canada, of the of the rainforest uh, in, in, in those crucial uh, parts of the world. I mean, I appreciate your optimism, but I don't share it. That's okay. Help me. Um, Help me, Phil. Help! Help! Well, I, I think what all of these incredible uh, messages are telling us is that we're, in you know, we're interconnected with one planet. This is our home, and I guess I have no other possibility but to hope, because I do not want to um, remove my energy and creativity to trying to be part of the solution, and that's what I think we all need to try and do. So, Phil Corman, back to the question I asked before I interrupted you. My apologies. Um, what can we do to help? So I think what we can do is multiple things. Um, there are going to be opportunities, and there have been opportunities, to donate directly to local farms, individual local farms, through GoFundMes. 
Um, there is CESA's Emergency Farm Fund, if you like the idea of a revolving no-interest loan fund. There is going to be this initiative announced by the governor at 1230. And I am hopeful that state government will be stepping up through the legislative process and the supplemental budget to also provide a big chunk of resources, because I think that's the role of government. All of that's going to be at buylocalfood.org. We're going to keep it up to date. We'll keep every opportunity open for all of us in the general population. But I think also we need to keep buying local and encouraging our friends to do that and to thank every single farmer you see for what they do every day. We've been speaking with Phil Corman, the executive director of CESA, community involved in sustaining agriculture, our local hero folks. Thank you so much, Phil. Thank you, Bill. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts. Got chronic joint pain? Not having success with steroids, but trying to avoid surgery? Well, thankfully, there's a better way, and now it's available here from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics. I'm talking about new, advanced regenerative medicine treatments that can restore and repair damaged tissue in your bad joints, providing lasting relief with no drugs, no surgery, and no downtime. This is an all-natural way to use highly concentrated healing properties from your own body to give you lasting relief. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in precision regenerative medicine medicine with over 100 clinics across America and literally thousands of satisfied patients. If you've got joint pain due to arthritis, knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, don't just think the old ways of dealing with pain are the only ways. You need to learn more about these new regenerative options that can change your life. Call QC Kinetics now. It's a free consultation with local medical professionals. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime, and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. We are joined by Carol Lois, who is the photographic editor for the Daily Hampshire Gazette. She has worked for the Gazette as a photographer for how long, Carol? 30 years. 30 years. And 
your work is vital to this community. It shows us stories in ways that we would not know otherwise. And I would like to follow up the conversation that we were just having having with Phil Corman, the executive director of CESA, Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture, the local heroes, and ask you how you went about photographing and showing the story of the floods that have devastated the valley. Help us understand what you were what you did and why you did it. You know, it's just such an it's just been such a crazy ten days and like trying to catch up with what's happening in real time is just it's just hard to do. And uh, the first day on Monday when when I realized how bad it was, driving from my house into the Gazette and realizing it had rained all night and kind of thinking, wow, the, the rivers are are, you know, getting high and then going into the Gazette and having this kind of meeting about other stories. And I just started saying, you guys, it's bad out there. Like, it's bad out there. And then all of a sudden I looked at my phone and I was getting texts from the community, which is so huge to me. I can't even tell you how much I rely on all the people I've given my cell phone number out to. And and I just started getting texts from a friend who lived in Williamsburg, and she's like, Carol, it's bad here. Like, like, And so I just looked at the newsroom. I said, I'm going. And we, I got my car, and I started driving up Route 9, and the road was flooded. And so that first day was really, for us, kind of, you know, Ashfield Road and the Mill River. The second day, it became clear to us, okay, it's about the Connecticut River. And then the third day was really like, oh, the farms you know, what has happened to the farms. And that first two days, you know, some of those fields where they really got hit are not so visible. Like, they're hard to see from just driving around. Like, you really have to get access to some of those. And then they were flooded, so access was really difficult to get. Then it wasn't until that third day that numbers started coming in and farms started calling in and saying, we've lost everything. And so then it was has really been about how do you how do we find those farmers and how do we find where those fields are? And Mountain View Farm was just devastated, but they were very, they were tentative about having us come out there. And so it's been a little bit of trying to figure out how to get to these fields and how to show something that is ruined, but also something that is hard to get to and, and, and you know, not, they can't get in there and work on that yet. So you're really just trying to show flood. <laughs> how do you do that? I think um, one of the like obvious ways is covering what the governor's doing and covering where she is and what's happening in these press conferences. And then the other piece of it is literally driving around <laughs> and um, going to places that we know. It's having resources. It's, it's connecting with farmers that you've known and trying to figure out, um, you know, how can we get to you and what's happening. And, you know, I think um, early on we met with a couple of farmers over in Hadley, and they showed us their fields that were, you know, completely underwater. But I think from my perspective, like you're trying to show this devastation, but you're getting farmers standing there talking, and it's it's harder to get, they're, they're not in their fields working. <laughs> so it's like, I think I finally went over to um, one of the farms and saw them trying to harvest some of what they had, and that's really, they're busy. You just have to go out and find them. Like, they're not getting on the phone going, hey, guess what I'm doing today at 10 o'clock. So what are you trying to show? 
I mean, are you looking for people to be in the photographs? Are you trying to sh- uh, capture high water? And and how do you make it? Uh, un- how did you, how do you make the photograph tell the story? That's really my question. I'm always looking for real moments, real action. And so as much as I appreciate these gatherings that we do and these press conferences we do, I'm always looking for kind of where is someone really doing something and where is that real, right, and not set up. And so that is really requires driving around these back roads and just looking. I can't tell you how many hours I spend just driving around. It's so interesting, Carol Lawless, that day that you're talking about with the Ashfield Road flooding in Williamsburg, the Mill River having flooded, I came in here and I started telling Bill, I, I talk for a living, that, and even when we introduced ourselves at the beginning of the show, I said, this is a wet Buzz Eisenberg. I was unable to convey what I had just driven through. Right. The photographs the next day, an image is worth a thousand words. You really, that's when your jaw drops and you say, oh my God, that car is underwater. Right. And that's like when I was there, I was just like this. I have never seen the river like this. And just following all of that. And like I said, I cannot thank the people enough who live in Williamsburg and just start texting me. Because I might have gone the other direction, right? Like I might have, I might not have thought about the Mill River. I might have thought about Hadley or something else. And to be drawn that way so quickly is so vitally important to what I'm trying to do. Do you have your camera with you all the time? It's usually in my car. Um, yeah, I would say I do. I don't, yeah. I don't often, on the weekends, I might not carry it around as much as I used to <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> But um, I think I, yeah, I carry it around with me all the time. And I am very rarely in the office. Like if there is downtime, I'm out and I'm following leads. I'm thinking through like, oh, I remember this story. I was kind of interested. I wonder if that guy's there. (laughs) What kind of a camera do you use? (laughs) This is so funny. I use a Nikon. I'm not a tech head. I am not even going to be able to tell you what kind of camera it is. I, I, I shoot on manual. I try to get into the computer as little as I possibly can on my camera. <laughs> and I, I have like my bag with my two lenses. and what, what kind of lenses? I use a 35 to 70, and I use a 70 to 210. Those are the, the millimeters. Yeah. And is this a camera you've had for a long time? Is this an old friend of yours? Kind of, you know, they're changing really, really quickly. And one of the things I really appreciate about some of the other people I work with is that they are tech heads like Dan Little and Kevin Gutting. And they really pushed kind of getting the newer cameras. And I really appreciate having some of the new technology that comes along with them. Like I noticed at some point that no one was using flashes. And I'm like, how are they getting away without using flashes? And they're like, well, the new cameras don't need them. I'm like, oh. <laughs> who, who knew? Who knew? <laughs> so sometimes it, it, you take images, I assume, in color. Yes. But sometimes in the newspaper they come out black and white. Are we missing something when we don't have the image in color? I think the problem with that is that there is a real place for black and white, and we are not making that decision based on that at this point. We're making that decision based on what page is color. So I would say yes. You know, most of the time, they the quality isn't as good, and it's not like we're saying this is a great documentary project that would look great in black and white. So um, I would say, for the most part, I really enjoy 
going online and looking at the e-edition and seeing all my photos in color in the morning. <laughs> Could you go back just one or two sentences? Some pages in the Gazette are color. Right. Some are not. Explain that. Okay, this is getting a little more out of my league, but there are pages that the way the press is set up that get run in color, and there are some pages that get run in black and white, depending on what's on those pages. And so that decision gets made not based on the photo, but based on... Life is unfair. Right, based on, on <laughs> based what on else is something. on that page, right. So, and we don't, you know, you can't change it out and go like, wow, this is a great color photo, we need to put another one in there. So I would like to know a bit more about what you said regarding people calling you uh, from the community saying, it's really bad out here. Do they call and say, here's a scene you might want to photograph, or they say to you more generally, there's something out here you're going to want to come take a look? It's a little of both. And I think, um, you know, when I talk to some of the younger reporters, they're kind of surprised at how freely and often I give out my cell phone number. My cell phone number is on my card. I give it to most people I meet. If you ever have anything, here's my cell phone. Text me, call me, let me know what's out there. And um, sometimes it's a story idea. Sometimes it's this is what's going on right now, Carol, <laughs> on Route 9 you know, get out here. And I make it my business to try to answer every one of those that I get and say, okay, we're not going to be able to get to that. Probably we just, you know, we covered that school three days ago. I'm not going to be able to get back in there. Um, but I try to answer each one and always thank them. Um, one of, one of the things I've been really trying to do is to get back into the schools since COVID it had kind of started before COVID even, but it, it was, I've just been really trying to get the schools to let me back in. And so I just, I'm always like, I know you guys are doing good stuff in here. Let me in. Let me ask you this, Carol Wallace, as the photographic editor of the Gazette, who's been doing this for three decades. <laughs> Is there an emotional toll that happens? Because one of the things that a photographer does, particularly a newspaper photographer does is ca cover stories that are tragic, that are sad, that are uh, at the core of really difficult issues. Does that take a toll on you? Um, I, I don't feel that way. Okay. Um, I'm sure it would if I did, if that tipped and I ended up doing more of those and less, but... A lot of what I really do is I took that card from Gordon Daniels, and I really feel like I'm documenting the valley. Gordon Daniels, who? Who worked at the Gazette for many, many, many years. And I really feel like I'm documenting the valley. And um, that is really fun for me. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't take any – I just love it. I love going out there and finding people and finding faces and – and documenting the valley in the best way that I can is the quirky photo of some guy in a tractor cutting his shrubs to a devastating loss or tragic accident. And I'm not going to say that some of those tragic accidents I still don't remember. I do, and they're, and they're hard and difficult to do. And I've gotten my head around how I want to do them. And I think in that way, I've kind of made peace with what my role is in that. So... I want to thank you for your time today, and I want to thank you for all you give this, all that you give to this community through your amazing, amazing artistic work. Thank you, Carol. Thank you.
This is a photograph A window to the past Of your father on the front line With no shirt on Ready to take the world on You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A former employee of the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Leeds was sentenced to eight years in prison for distributing child pornography through the facility's public Wi-Fi. 51-year-old Kevin Divill of Royalston was sentenced to eight years in prison and five years of supervised release. It's been three years since the U.S. Department of Justice released a report on an investigation into the Springfield Police Narcotics Division. The ACLU of Massachusetts is engaged in a lawsuit against the Hampton County District Attorney's Office over its failure to follow up on the investigation. Executive Director of the Massachusetts ACLU, Carol Rose. It was a pretty thorough investigation, and they issued this report in the hopes, I think, that there would be an effort to change the policies and practices and procedures of the Springfield Police Department. But then nothing happened. The report included instances of officers beating people in custody, threatening to kill and plant drugs on teenagers in Palmer, and other forms of violence and injustice. The ACLU has filed the case in partnership with the Committee for Public Counsel Service, and it is currently before the state's Supreme Judicial Court. Monitoring the presence of algae in Nashawanic Pond in East Hampton will now be easier with a new tool purchased and shared by the Silvio Oconti National Fish and Wildlife Refuge. The device is called Cyanoflor, and it looks for the presence of cyanobacteria. The bacteria creates algae blooms that poses health hazards to swimmers, animals, and plants. The Connecticut River Conservancy will go out once a month to test the pond, as well as others including Great Pond in Hatfield, Triangle Pond in Northampton, and Pine Island Lake in West Hampton. Partial sunshine this morning, showers and thunderstorms this afternoon, which could cause some flash flooding once again, a high of 84 to 88. For tomorrow, it's a mixture of sun and clouds, a high of 84 to 88. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rachivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El Departamento de Justicia instó a un juez el jueves a rechazar los intentos de Donald Trump de posponer su juicio por documentos clasificados, diciendo que no había fundamento para una demora abierta solicitada por sus abogados. Los fiscales federales propusieron el mes pasado un juicio el 11 de diciembre para Trump, quien está acusado de 37 delitos graves relacionados con el mal manejo de documentos clasificados en su propiedad de Mar-a-Lago, aunque la fecha real dependerá del juez. Los abogados de Trump respondieron esta semana con una solicitud de postergación. No propusieron una fecha específica, pero dijeron que el caso se refería a cuestiones legales novedosas y que proceder con un juicio dentro de los seis meses es irrazonable y resultaría en un error judicial. El jueves, los fiscales del equipo fiscal especial de Jack Smith respondieron pidiéndole a la jueza federal de distrito, Eileen Cannon, que no pospusiera el juicio más allá de la fecha de diciembre que recomendaron. En otras informaciones, la Agencia contra el Cáncer de la Organización Mundial de la Salud ha considerado que el endulzante aspartame, que se encuentra en las bebidas gaseosas dietéticas e innumerables otros alimentos, es una posible causa de cáncer, mientras que un grupo de expertos separado que analizó la misma evidencia dijo que todavía considera que el sustituto del azúcar es seguro en cantidades limitadas. Los diferentes resultados de las revisiones coordinadas se publicaron el viernes temprano. El aspartame se une a una categoría con 
además de otros 300 posibles agentes causantes de cáncer. Sin embargo, la guía sobre el uso del endulzante no está cambiando. El aspartame es un endulzante artificial bajo en calorías que es unas 200 veces más dulce que el azúcar. Es un polvo blanco e inodoro y el edulcolorante artificial más utilizado en el mundo. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Now I'm a And this is our Have Faith segment. We are joined this week by the Reverend Michael McSherry, pastor at the Edwards Church here in Northampton. Reverend McSherry, I want to spend 30 seconds to explain why I'm about to ask you what I am. And that is that some weeks ago on this segment, we were speaking with Reverend Carol Bull from the uh, United Church of Ware, and the guest who she was going to bring with her that day uh, couldn't make it, had childcare uh, snafus. And I said to Carol, I knew you when you were the pastor, but before she was ordained, but she was the uh, uh, spiritual uh, guidance person available at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. And I said, I'd really like to ask you about that. And we got into a conversation about what it was like for her to have to... Uh, communicate with and counsel and care for people who were near death uh, and families who had loved ones who were near death. And then we got involved in a conversation about what's death and what happens after physical death. And it, I thought it was a really interesting conversation, and we've continued to have those conversations with the Uh, spiritual and religious leaders who are our regular guests on this Have Faith segment, and I would like to continue that conversation with you today. So I pose a really big question, which is, what does your faith teach, and what do you believe about, after this life, what happens? Mm. Boy, that's a big one, and I love it. Um, so what does my faith teach and and you know what do i make out of that uh the christian tradition writ large has uh believe it or not at least in my understanding of the christian tradition writ large uh, a couple of options to choose from <laughs> you know there's there's the heaven and hell model um and i uh, know plenty of christians who don't believe in hell um and a question you know what if there's a life after death, and it's something like heaven, quote unquote, what's that look like? Um, because most of the models you hear described or discussed are based on some sort of a replica based on our current existence. And that seems silly. I mean, why assume it's just a better version of where we are now? Um, when, when you uh did give me a heads up about this topic bill i i asked you if, you know if we could hear um the spirit in the sky you know the great norman greenbaum classic from the i think it was the late 60s with that deep guitar twang 
and he sings, you know, when I when I when I die, I'm going to go to spirit in the sky. Um, you know, we we if we have a soul, if there's something about the human being that is um, persists after the body dies, um, where does it go, and what is there? Um, and I like Greenbaum because he was a a, a fun frolicky version of um, of the Thoreau, I think it was Thoreau essay, the Oversoul. You know that that when we die, our our souls leave our bodies and they they go to a different dimension where they are collected into what, for lack of a better metaphor, is almost like an ocean of other souls, and we are no longer differentiated one from the other, but fold into an endless sea of others. Um, I think that's the closest thing I can come to was, you know, a, an image for what happens after we um, shake off this mortal coil <laughs> um, is, is, you know, we're, we're liberated from the limits of living in three and a half dimensions. Um, Oh. Well, let me, well, let me. You know, I also like the metaphor that you hear. It's somewhat biblical: being gathered into the bones of your ancestors. You know, of living in the company of people you miss. So, could you spend another minute on what you mean by the soul and what you mm -hmm. what you believe happens with the soul? and what it is and how it continues to persist, persist or exist in some dimension. It's, it's really hard for me to wrap my mind around. And if you could help, I'd appreciate it. Well, it's a, it's, it's a great question because it's, uh, <laughs> there's, there's this um, story about two famous uh, Christian theologians of the 20th century. I can't remember the names right now. It doesn't matter. Um, but they were they were good friends. Stop me now if I've told you this before. And um, they kind of grew up together as professionals. They met when they were young graduate students, and then as their careers as as academics and teaching theologians unfolded, they they ended up going to a lot of the same conferences. Their families would vacation together, for all I know, probably in Western Mass. And um, Eventually they retired and eventually one of them died first. And the faculty secretary at the school where the other one was now a professor emeritus walked into his office and said, I'm sorry, I have to be the one to tell you, but your dear friend has now died. And he looked up from the book he was reading and said, well, now he knows. <laughs> yeah, uh, Reverend uh, McSherry. I, it's I, all speculation. It's all speculation. Um, Bill was talking about the other um, uh, spiritual leaders uh, that he has uh, broached the subject with. Um, but this past uh, Monday, I think, we had the president and co-founder of the Freedom From Religion Foundation, Annie Laurie Gaylor, on. And she was asked a question about the afterlife. And she said that uh, for her, she's a, a non-theist, uh, 
uh, and the organization is filled with agnostics and atheists as members. And she said that why should we be living our life now to prepare ourselves for a different life later? We should live our life now as richly as we can. She does not believe in an afterlife. Um, and, and she said that it seems that quite often people are asked to live their life out of fear of what's going to happen later, and that is no way to live. What say you to her thoughts? Well, I agree with her that we should not um, live our lives in fear of punishment. I assume she's, that's what she means. Um, but I also don't think that the, you know, the, the founder of the religious movement that I'm part of, and it's, it's, you can't, it's hard to call Jesus a founder because he may have been trying to start a movement, but I don't think he was trying to start a breakaway sect from Judaism. Um, but I think um, Jesus was much more interested in how people live in the here and now and how we treat each other than he was trying to get us to earn our way into heaven, right? I think Jesus was much more interested in um, awakening people to um, an outlook and a spiritual commitment to living in a way that would create a life of the here and now in which people um, are freed from the conditions of poverty and injustice and allowed to live and supported in living their best lives. It's very much a, uh, very much a statement of Jewish belief. If you, do right, if you do right in this world, the next one will take care of itself. Right. Is well, it, you know, Jesus was a wandering Jew. <laughs> I, I would like to go back to the music for a bit. Um, there, I'm looking at the lyrics from the from blood, sweat, and tears. Swear there ain't no heaven, and I pray there ain't no hell. But I'll never know by living; only by dying will tell. Yes, only <laughs> by dying will tell. And then the next line: And when I die, and when I'm gone, there'll be one child born in the world to carry on, to carry on. What do you make of those lyrics? Boy, um, and thank you for reminding me of that song. Isn't it, isn't it, and I'm not dodging the question, you can bring me back to it, but isn't it interesting how a lot of our, our popular culture and artistic expressions um, encapsulate these issues and give us a lyric or a metaphor that addresses it so beautifully? The way I understand that is um, almost a reincarnation concept. And, and when I die, there'll be one child more to carry on hmm. how is it that my death creates or creates the opening or the space for another child born to carry on um, do you believe in reincarnation in some way um, I don't think so no I mean, obviously, our, 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 our physical constituents are, are recycled in some sense. But um, for the, no, the, the, in my understanding of, of, of 
and I don't know how reincarnation shows up in other traditions, but in the traditions that include the notion of karma, um, we're reincarnated until we get to escape the wheel. And, um, and I don't know any human who's evolved to the point where they got to escape the wheel other than possibly Jesus, Jesus and the Buddha. We are speaking with Reverend Michael McSherry. He is the pastor at the Edwards Church in Northampton. We'll continue this conversation in two minutes. We'll be right back. is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside, get a beach read. Like Happy Place by Emily Henry, Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads for the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice, and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Reverend Michael McSherry, pastor at the Edwards Church here in Northampton. During the break, Buzz, you had posed a question to Reverend McSherry, and I would ask you to restate it so our listeners can hear, and then we'll find out what Reverend McSherry, what his response is. 
Right. I, I know, Reverend, that among your pastoral duties, sometimes you have to counsel those who are suffering the loss of a loved one. And I'm wondering how often it comes from them a concern about the afterlife and about what's going to happen to their 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 loved one uh, now that they've passed on. What Do people approach you with that question? It does come up. Um, and... And it comes up as as uh, Carol Bull was saying, as Reverend Bull was saying, it it also comes up before they die. Right? Sometimes people who are in the process of dying and know it want to know if they're going to be reunited with those who have gone before. And I typically um, will do two things. Uh, it, it, a lot depends on circumstance, and the sort of the social emotional context. Um, I try to encourage family members um, or patients if people are, you know, facing death um, to tell me what their personal belief or hope is because um, I want to respect that. Um, I'm not engaged in a theological debate in these conversations, in these moments. And they're for support and um but i also you know tell the truth if they ask me a direct question they'll get a direct answer um and my honest answer is we don't know and we can't know until uh, we've crossed that line um it's it's my hope and i and i you know this is something about which you know proof is not available um that there is some some sort of reuniting. Um, and if that's not something you need or something you yearn for, then I don't require agreement. But um, it's certainly a widely held notion. Um, it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, if 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 we don't have any perception after we die, it won't matter. Right? And if we do have perception after we die in some form, then we'll find out. Um, are these, imagine are these difficult ahead. conversations these, for you? Are they difficult? Yes. Yeah. Um, the first couple times they were, but after that, I, in my experience, people aren't looking for, you know, a theological, philosophical conversation. They're afraid, they're concerned, they're suffering, um, and they, they want clarity and comfort. And I think if I'm in the room with them, and I, I can say it not in a confrontational way, but just an honest way, we don't know, you know, th there are matters of faith. And if it is your, if it is your belief that you will be reunited with your loved ones, then by all means, hang on to that. I love that concept. I've, I've stood in hospital rooms before and after a beloved family member was dying, actively dying. And then after they died, I stood with the family and we, you know, we prayed for dad that he might be in the, you know, the, the, the recliner, his favorite recliner in the great beyond watching the Red Sox with his brother, you know, 
because that was the comforting image. That sounds like hell to me. <laughs> well, you know, that was a different family, and the Red Sox were having a different year. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, we'll leave it on that optimistic note. We've been speaking with Reverend Michael McSherry, pastor at the Edwards Church here in Northampton. Thank you so much, Reverend McSherry. We really appreciate your time, your insights, and your leadership and devotion to this community. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Thank, Thank you, you, Reverend. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, creasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the 3 billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And it is Thursday. And on Thursday, we can always look forward to our science and sustainability correspondent, Brian Adams who's always talking about timely and important issues involving our uh, environment. And uh, Brian, you have some special guests today. I do have some special guests, and they join us in this time of weather turbulence, the new normal out there. More rain coming, uh, rain, rain, and more rain, heat engulfing the entire planet. And we can't think but climate change is... Uh, not something that will happen, but that something is is that is happening, rearing its ugly head right now. We really encourage, once again, all of our listeners to do whatever they can to support local farmers, buying local food um, whenever you can, because the farmers are really struggling in the valley here, at least some of them. So uh, we really want to, to make sure that we are being as supportive of them as possible. And as we look at this era of climate change, we really need to look at solutions. And one of those solutions, of course, is to get ourselves off of fossil fuels, oil, coal, and natural gas as quickly as we can. And there are lots of interesting ways to do that. And of course, one of the ways is to go solar. Solar electricity is electricity produced uh, by using energy from the sun 
uh, and converting it directly into electricity. It's called photovoltaics, photo, the sun, and uh, voltaics, uh, electricity. No moving parts, nothing is combusted, nothing is consumed, and lots of interest in, in putting up as much solar as we possibly can. And just about no one is opposed to putting solar up on rooftops, on businesses, on industrial buildings. I don't think any, very few people are opposed to large-scale solar when it's done on things like landfills. Greenfield's got a huge solar array on their landfill. Northampton on their cap landfill, the same thing. I read in the Gazette yesterday, and I'm going to forget about the town. I think it was Deerfield looking at their cap landfill as a site for solar uh, as well. This gets more com uh, complicated and controversial when we're talking about large solar. And by large, we mean megawatts. When you think about your house, your neighbor's house, it might have five kilowatts. That's 5,000 watts, maybe 10 kilowatts, 10,000 watts. Uh, when we're looking at large-scale solar, we're talking about megawatts, millions of watts of power, in some cases as much as 30 or 40 or even 50 million megawatts of power. And joining us today are three residents of Shutesbury, Jill Buchanan, Carlos Fontes, and Elizabeth Fernandez O'Brien. They're members of Smart Solar Shutesbury and have a vested interest in the very large industrial solar that is being proposed for Shutesbury. Elizabeth, Jill, and Carlos, welcome to the program. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So let's uh, put this in perspective. There is an organization, Pure Sky Energy Incorporated, along with Coles. Uh, Coles is the largest private landowner in the state. Uh, Coles Forestry, right? Was that, is that what they're called? Um, and and the two of those are actually suing the town of Shutesbury um, because you have put. Uh, obstacles, I want to say, in their way of doing what they want. So let's uh, begin at the beginning here. First, where is Shutesbury for our listeners? Uh, well, Shutesbury is a small town, a small hill town um, around Amherst. Uh, a lot of people confuse Shutesbury with Shrewsbury, which is in the central part of the state. And we are a town of about 1,700 re residents. So the, the kind of town that uh, if you drive too fast, uh, you will miss the center of town. Uh, but clearly these two energy, uh, cows, coals, and pure sky have not driven too fast and have a real interest uh, in doing what in town? Explain what's going on. Uh, Elizabeth, you want to start? Shootsbury um, Center, which... Um, leads down to the Atkins Reservoir, which is the water supply for Amherst and part of Shutesbury, is higher than Mount Tom. And the proposal is that five sites, cookie-cutter-shaped sites, will be um, able to produce solar and that Coles will be able to sell, Coles Amp Pure Sky, will be able to sell that electricity, not to the benefit of Shutesbury residents, but into the grid. And what are the objections that Smart Solar Shootsbury have to this proposal? Carlos? Uh, yeah, it's, I, I would like to, to note that um, one of the solutions to climate change and, and, to, the, uh, and to the greenhouse gas, gases is not just solar. 
but that forests are also a solution to climate change in that um, we already have an excess of carbon uh, in, the at in, in, in the atmosphere and forests are the only scalable means that we have to draw down that carbon. So we need both to have solar, but we need equally to have to maintain all of the forests that we have on the planet if we have a chance to draw down the excess car carbon now. E even if we stopped producing any more carbon by the burning of fossil fuels, we'll still be dealing with effects of the carbon that all already exists on the planet. That is the reason that we are putting obstacles, as you said, to the cutting of forests for the siting, for the building of uh, industrial-scale solar in Schutzberry. So, so Coles and Pure Sky are uh, looking at large-scale sites to put megawatts, many megawatts of solar, and that involves clear-cutting Schutzberry Forest. This is on Coles land, correct? Uh, do they not have the right to do that? You adopted a couple bylaws, one in, I think, 2000, recently, 2023, and one before that, that restrict numbers of acres that could be clear-cut. Uh, do you want to talk about how the bylaw is different from what these two entities have proposed? Joe, you want to start us off with that? Sure. Um, so in January of 2023, um, the town of Shutesbury um, nearly unanimously adopted a bylaw, um, a solar bylaw, that says that, um, you know, the town supports reasonable solar implementation in the town, which means that um, solar is possible on 15 acres or less, um, but it also protects our essential water um, resources and critical um, natural habitat. So much of the land that um, is being targeted for clear cutting for solar is recognized biomap to habitat. So it's very important um, habitat to maintain ecological balance, but it's also that that land, it serves essential uh, purpose for of filtering our water in town. Uh, Shootsbury is 100% dependent on groundwater for our drinking water supply. And so clear cutting that land would pose uh, a, a serious threat to our drinking water um, because that aquifer serves a critical purpose for our town. So the town unanimous, unanimously, nearly unanimously passed this bylaw in January of 2023 to, to make sure that reasonable protections were enforced that our this is a common practice that's happened in many dozens of towns across the state that a local bylaw protects the town's resources and health and safety of its community. That's all that, that we were doing with that bylaw. So there's that bylaw. We also have a wetlands protection bylaw, um, which says that um, our wetlands uh, must be protected um, and that, um, uh, you know, it, it, it robustly defines what a wetland is and what service it provides. And so both of those um, bylaws are, are being addressed right now in town to make sure that they stand up to um, aggressive tactics by multinational companies that threaten the health and safety of our community. Elizabeth, you have something to add? 
No, I'm happy if you want to ask another question. I, I, I would just want to add that we also have a zoning by, by law that limits development to a maximum of 15 acres. Um, so it's not excluding large-scale solar. 15 acres is 15 acres. I mean, that's a lot of solar that can go in. What is it that Pure Sky and Coles want? Do they want to uh, extend that footprint? What is it that they're asking that the bylaw uh, is prohibiting? In essence, what they are saying is that um, they cannot make enough money uh, with sites that are limited to, fifth, to, fifth, to 15 acres. And um, the, uh, the claims that they make in their lawsuit is that, what, uh, uh, that their projects are not a threat uh, to water, uh, to health, and to the well-being of residents in, 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 Schut in Schutzbury. And of course, they are asserting that without uh, having any kind of evidence or discovery uh, that is in fact the case. And so they want the judge to do a summary decision that in fact their projects are not a threat to the water, the health, and the well-being of, of residents of, Schut of Schutzbury we, without due process to establish whether that is true or not. So this is tied up in the court now, is that correct? And a judge will be looking at what? Can you explain very briefly what, what the legal process is here? Yeah, so just to recap, um, the the um, AMP and Coles are suing the town of Shutesbury. Um, AMP, AMP is the Pure Sky, or AMP the, is, the former is iteration been, of right, Pure Sky. Right, exactly. So AMP is now Pure Sky, which is basically a multinational company that invests in um, you know, carbon trading uh, projects. Um, it's a purely an investment project for them. They have no interest or even knowledge of our local community at all. So they have no investment in our town. Um, to them, this is an investment. And they're basically suing the town to say that, you know, um, they, that we're making it unreasonable, unreasonably difficult for them to make a profit. Um, and, uh, and so the process is that it, they're asking the judge to make this summary judgment um, sometime in the next couple of months. If the judge says, you know, no, that we're not going to, um, that, w that this is not uh, reasonable for them to just unilaterally move forward with this project, then, then the whole project will go on to a, a legal case, a trial. And that's um, where the town, it will cost the town a significant amount of money. Um, small towns like Shutesbury don't have this kind of resources, and these multinational companies depend on that you know, to pressure towns to cave in and just succumb to their wishes to make profit. Because most towns will not fight back because they're afraid of having to spend tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars on lawsuits like this that are extremely aggressive and, and very difficult for towns to fight. So it's a little bit like David and Goliath, it seems like, where Shutesbury is the biblical David and Goliath is these two large... Uh, Pure Sky, large corporation, and Coles, a large forest preserve that is that is out to um, to do what they want. We're talking with Joe Buchanan, Carlos Fontes, and Elizabeth Fernandez O'Brien. They are three residents of Shutesbury and members of Smart Solar Shutesbury. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, the benefits that a large-scale project like this would bring, and some of your concerns about. 
again, your concerns about industrial solar. Uh, stick with us, and we'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. Saga Communications of New England is looking for an IT administrator to work in a fast-paced and challenging work environment. This position requires a strong self-starter with the ability to quickly learn new processes. You're a team player that can take ownership of local IT operations and contribute to a team of IT engineers. You must possess the ability to juggle and prioritize work while supporting numerous employees in three locations in Western Mass. There will be regular travel to Springfield, Northampton, and Greenfield. Flexibility is the key to success. The ideal candidate will be somebody who has an interest in the broadcast radio industry and knowledge of LAN and WAN support. You should understand Windows Active Directory, networks, router, and firewall functions, and have experience with desktop support of Office 365 and utilizing a help desk environment supporting users in multiple locations. And yes, you'll receive great benefits. Please send your cover letter and resume to itjobs at springfieldrocks.com. Saga Communications of New England is an equal opportunity employer. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we're talking with three residents of Shootsbury who are involved in Smart Solar Shootsbury, um, looking at Coles and Pure Sky coming in with some industrial solar uh, planned for the town. I learned a new science word of the day uh, today from Carlos. It's called extractivism. Um, it's an interesting word, extractivism. Carlos, what is that and how does that pertain to Shootsbury? Well, uh, extractivism is a uh, word that comes out of um, the activists and the academics who are looking at uh, the extraction of natural resources in the world. And extractivism simply means extraction of natural resources on steroids and without any kind of regard for the impact of that ex extraction on the lives and livelihoods of local com communities where that extraction takes place. This is something that uh, uh, 
communities in the third world, in Latin America, in Asia, they have been dealing with this for a long time, and now it's coming to us. And so what we're experiencing in, Schut in, in Schutzberry now is a local ma manifestation of the extractivism that has been going on uh, for a while in other parts of the world. Um, and, and simply put, these, this is corp corporations uh, extracting natural resources at a very fast pace um, without concern. In this case, in our case, this is insidious because the, the natural resource are uh, forests, and this, kind, this extractivism is being done in the name of fighting climate change. Scientifically, this is incorrect because what science, uh, what climate scientists have demonstrated is that, again, I say this again, is that we need forests in order to draw down the excessive carbon that already exists on the planet. And when people talk about, well, you know, should we cut forests to put solar, we need solar, they are for forgetting this scientific fact that no, we cannot because forests are the only means that we have to take carbon out of the air. I know that the town of Amherst is looking at a large-scale solar site on the site of a former golf course. Um, and part of that golf course, is, it's been now taken over by the town. Most of it will be in conservation land, but some of it will be a large solar array. Given that it's a golf course, there's a lot of open land there, but there will be some trees cut down. I think they're talking about a couple hundred, and there seems to be less opposition to that in Amherst. Here we're talking about thousands of trees, is that correct? And I guess, is there consensus that clear-cutting that amount of trees um, override the value of putting up solar? In other words, large-scale solar will not make up uh, the energy required. Um, and, I, and I'm butchering my question here, but I think you get it. Which is better, to put up large solar and cut down a number of trees or to keep those trees up and put solar somewhere else? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think that kind of gets to the crux of the problem, which is this assumption that um, you know having more solar is going to more than make up for the you know carbon um, sequestration or the the amount of carbon in the atmosphere that we currently are struggling with. And the, the reality is, and studies have shown, there's a, there's been studies um, by uh, scientist Bill Numa that shows that actually um, there is actually no benefit and actually um, more harm is done than good than when you clear cut for solar installations. Um, that, you know, if you're just purely looking at the carbon balance, it does not um, result in, in lowering the carbon balance um, in the atmosphere. So just from that perspective alone, um, you're not actually getting the benefit um, through by doing this project. On top of that, you know, you're, you're also destroying very important habitat. You're destroying uh, land that serves really essential services for uh, filtering water into our through our aqu aquifer for our drinking water. And in Shootsbury, we're talking about huge amounts of 
forests. So thousands of trees. So we're talking about three 45-acre projects. You know, one project um, that is over 150 acres and another one that is 92-acre site. That's many thousands of trees that we're talking about and, that and, all serve this. And these are completely forested areas, so that would be totally clear-cut for sites? That's, um, we're talking, yeah, these are forested areas and, and important wetland areas. And both and wetlands also serve a critically important um, service for carbon sequestration. The, the argument that Pure Sky and Coles has is that, um, one, this is solar, this is clean energy, Two, it would be enough electricity for, I think, 5,000 homes that they're putting up. Uh, it would be a pollinator meadow that they would put underneath, that there would be jobs for local residents, both in terms of putting up the solar and also maintaining the solar, that the town itself would get a huge payment out of this. I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Is there? You, you represent um, an organization that is opposed to this. Are, Shoots, are other Shootsbury residents in favor of this proposal. Uh, Elizabeth, you want to handle that? Um, we do have conversations with people um, because it's really important for us all to be in communication, <clears throat> sorry, with all of the residents and asking them what their opinion is because what we're looking at is um, contiguous forest presently. And that contiguous forest, I know I'm veering a little bit, is the site for preventing the, the, the spread, that's a recent study, of ticks. It is preventing erosion. Uh, there are a lot of positives for uh, the, so the idea of keeping it as a, a contiguous forest because it's double the amount that Jill mentioned, about 350 acres times two, in order for them to have enough land around these sites and one of those sites is Wheelock that they already have put up, not one of these proposed, but already. And that site um, has not been made into a meadow. And they're not, they're not acting on what they promised they would act on. There is no data that will show even if they do that, it will um, be sufficient uh, plantings in order to recover the land. Joe, you want to follow up on that? Just a couple of things. Um, just to answer your question about you know the community support, I think the fact that we had nearly unanimous turnout, we had a huge turnout for our you know vote on the solar bylaw in January, nearly unanimous vote to pass the solar bylaw, all in recognition that this project, these proposed projects, would cause huge harm to our community. So that that is proof that most of the community is really behind um, the the halting of this project. The other thing I want to just mention is that, you know, this project is not necessary. Even if, even if in the best case scenario of, you know, thinking that um, that clear cutting for solar would be, you know, good for carbon or carbon balance, the state just commissioned and produced a report that shows that it is absolutely not necessary. Um, to do this at all, that the state, there is, you know, the, that there are plenty of um, brownfields, rooftops, um, and other already um, degraded habitats that will more than um, be enough for um, solar projects in the state. So this project is absolutely not necessary. It's going to be very harmful for our community. If they, if they win this lawsuit, it's sets a precedent that will be incredibly damaging for communities like ours throughout the state and well beyond that. We've been talking with Jill Buchanan, Carlos Fontes, 
and Elizabeth Fernandez O'Brien. There are three members of Smart Solar Shootsbury looking at the lawsuit that Coles and Pure Sky is bringing against the town, claiming that the bylaw uh, adopted by the town members are way too restrictive. Um, and for folks who want to get in touch with you, is there smartsolarshootsbury.org? And we will also be happy to provide you with legislative activism context. context. I, I just have one other question. What percentage, if you know, of the energy that's generated by solar installations are industrial versus, you know, residential? Anybody know? Good question. I don't. And, and, and I don't mean to skirt your question, but... I would like to address the question that Brian asked before. Uh, okay, in the 30 seconds we have left, address away. Uh, and that is that the uh, choice uh, whether which is better, solar or forest, is a false question, is a false choice. It's only a choice because of economic reasons, not because of environmental reasons. And so if, you, if I have time, I can uh, expand on that. Uh, we're just about out of time here, but it's so... Um, disheartening to see so many big, flat industrial roofs out there solar-free when there's just so much space on top of uh, and so much so much can be done. And we're going to encourage um, all of us to be active in solar in terms of getting those businesses and large-scale roofs online. Such an important issue. and so glad for the local activism around this important issue. Thank you all for what you're doing. Thank you for coming here. We're going to be back with all that jazz. Glenn Siegel has a wonderful guest, local Anna Weber, internationally known musician, saxophonist, composer, and educator. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A former employee of the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Leeds was sentenced to eight years in prison for distributing child pornography through the facility's public Wi-Fi. 51-year-old Kevin Divill of Royalston was sentenced to eight years in prison and five years of supervised release. It's been three years since the U.S. Department of Justice released an investigation into the Springfield Police Narcotics Division. The ACLU of Massachusetts is engaged in a lawsuit against the Hamden County DA's office over its failure to follow up on the investigation. Executive Director of the Massachusetts ACLU, Carol Rose. And so it was a pretty thorough investigation, and they issued this report in the hopes that there would be an effort to change the policies and practices um, and procedures of the Springfield Police Department. But then nothing happened. The justice report included instances of officers beating people in custody, threatening to kill and plant drugs on teenagers in Palmer, and other forms of violence and injustice. The ACLU has filed the case in partnership with the Committee for Public Counsel Service, and it is currently before the state's Supreme Judicial Court. Monitoring the presence of algae in Nashawanic Pond will now be easier with a new tool purchased and shared by the Silvio Oconti National Fish and Wildlife Refuge. The device is called Cyanoflor, and it looks for the presence of cyanobacteria. The bacteria creates algae blooms that pose health hazards to swimmers, animals, and plants. The Connecticut River Conservancy will go out once a month to test the pond, as well as others including Great Pond in Hatfield, Triangle Pond in Northampton, and Pine Island Lake in West Hampton. 
Some cloud mixed today. There is a slight chance of an afternoon shower, primarily in the hills, a high of 84 to 88. Clouds on the increase tonight with evening temperatures in the 70s, an overnight low of 62 to 68. Showers likely tomorrow could be a thunderstorm in the afternoon, a high of 78 to 82. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Learn Spanish, learn French, learn Italian or German. Learn a language with the International Language Institute. Beginner, intermediate, and advanced conversation classes. Speaking the language with others who are learning. ILI is a PDP provider for the state of Massachusetts. Plus, earn continuing education units. Learn Spanish, French, German, Italian. A six-week summer class meets twice a week starting July 18th. Sign up online. One of the world's top language schools is right here. The International Language Institute in downtown North Northampton. There are days where you just want to hang a sign on the door. Gone fishing. But you're not going to get a line in the water today. So you go to Paul and Elizabeth's, which may be the next best thing. Order the fish and chips. It's tempura style fish. The batter's so light and airy. The chips are fresh cut in Paul and Elizabeth's kitchen. Have you tried Paul and Elizabeth's Cajun sampler? Shrimp, scallops, and cod with a spicy etouffee sauce. Did you know that feeling sluggish or weighed down could be signs that your digestive system isn't working at its best? But taking Metamucil every day can help. Metamucil supports your daily digestive health using a special plant-based fiber called psyllium. Psyllium works by forming a gel in your digestive system to trap and remove the waste that weighs you down. Metamucil's gelling action also helps to promote heart health and slows down sugar absorption to promote healthy blood sugar levels. Start feeling lighter and more energetic by taking Metamucil every day. And this is our All That Jazz segment. You know, Glenn Siegel, you are constantly not just bringing us great musicians and, and great insights into the music that enriches our lives so much, but you manage to find these local people who are just incredible. We have just uh, it's Treasure Island around here. It is, as... and Anna Weber, my guest today, is uh, one of them, and uh, I think of her as a local artist, even though she's a world traveler and uh, still in New York quite a bit. Um, when we have talent like that, we should claim it as our own. Yes, right? I do, I do. <laughs> Um, so let me introduce Anna Weber. She's uh, originally from British Columbia. She's a tenor saxophonist, flutist, and composer who in the last decade has become one of the leading musicians of her generation. She leads her simple trio with John Hollenbeck and Matt Mitchell and with Angela Morris co-leads a big band. In 2018, she was awarded a Guggenheim Award for her work in music composition, and she's a 2021 Berlin Prize Fellow. 
She's produced nine critically acclaimed recordings as a leader and has released six additional recordings as a co-leader. She lives in Greenfield with her husband, the respected pianist and composer Eric Wubbles. Hello, Anna. Hello, Glenn. Welcome to WHMP. Can I impose one really quick question? Is it flutist or flautist? Uh, you know, I think both are acceptable. From my own personal perspective, I prefer flutist. Okay, thank or you. flute player. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, Anna, welcome. Uh, you've been incredibly busy in the last year. Give us a sense of your itinerary in the last 12 to 16 months. <laughs> uh, how many miles have you logged? How many cities have you visited? Uh, well, enough to um, enough to get status on a couple of different airlines. <laughs> uh-huh. But yeah, I've been, um, I guess since things have opened up post-COVID, I've been fortunate enough to stay quite busy. I've been to Europe probably eight times in the last year and a half. I've uh, been all over the United States. Um, what, yeah. brought, what brought you to Greenfield? That's a good question. Um, my husband went to school at Amherst College and really loved the area. He then did a couple, couple of uh, guest professorship positions um, subsequently. And yeah, we were thinking of leaving New York, and he really had uh, fond memories of living in western Massachusetts. So we had some friends who lived in Greenfield already. We looked around there and, you know, found a place that we really liked and, and jumped. And you, and COVID was the precipitating uh Event? You know, it sort of looks like that from the outside, but we feel like we need to assert that we had planned to move to Greenfield before <laughs> okay. COVID hit, <laughs> okay. and that COVID was completely coincidental. Okay, okay. Yeah. So uh, you're performing twice this year as part of the upcoming season of Pioneer Valley Jazz Shares, which I curate. Uh, in October, you're playing the Blue Room in East Hampton with Max Johnson's trio, and in March, you're leading your own quintet at the Shea Theater in Turner's Falls. How do you like uh, performing close to home? Oh, it's great. Yeah, I love not not traveling. I spent so so much of my life traveling. It's great, great to be able to, you know, drive twenty minutes or so. But you know, it's I still feel relatively new to this area. My my musical community and a lot of my friends are still in New York area, which is where you know I moved from. Um, so I feel like I'm still just like learning about this area and and getting to know all the people around here. So I really appreciate the chance to. Um, form some more community. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, uh, how deep a dive you've been able to make into the local jazz scene, and have you gotten to know local musicians and venues? Yeah, a little bit. You know, I was was traveling for 180 days last year, so uh, my time at home has been somewhat limited. (laughs) But I have, there's been several um, local musicians who I've played with. Nat Baldwin is a great bass player that we've been doing some duo concerts. Um, and Tony Falco, a great drummer that we've been playing with. Mike Friedman is my friend who lives in Greenfield already that we've been we've been playing together with. So there's been several um, people locally that I've connected with. Mm-hmm. Have you been able to play with uh, Jason Robinson? No, we yeah. haven't played together. Yeah, but we've um, we've met. We know each yeah. other a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Great. I'm speaking with Anna Weber, great tennis saxophonist, flutist, and composer. Um, flute player. Flute player. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, yeah. T- tenor player. Tenor player, tenor player. flute player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Piano player. player. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so tell me about your decision uh, 
to take a week off from playing, that seems somewhat unusual. Oh, no. You need rest. Everybody takes vacations. Really? Just because I'm a musician okay. doesn't mean I don't get a vacation. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I try to do that every once in a while. And um, I just came off a really busy stretch. I was writing a bunch of music. I was in Chicago for a week. I was in New York for a week. Then I was at home preparing to play at North Sea Jazz Festival with my trio. Um, so we were in Europe for about like five days from door to door and then came back and just was then practicing a lot because uh, Matt Mitchell, piano player in my trio, and I did a duo record um, this last weekend. And, you know, it's summer. My in-laws were in town. I really felt like I needed to just kind of mm-hmm. rest for a week. So I don't do it that frequently, but I do feel like it's important to reset and give your body a chance to recover from st- some stuff sometimes nobody else expects themselves to work 100 percent of the time so right, right musicians right. are uh, are not any different than others sure sure i'm just thinking musicians who don't practice for a few days start to feel rusty and uh like they've lost their edge but it sounds like you're playing so much that you just need to rest your chops Oh, yeah. I mean, and, you know, some instruments are more forgiving than others. Brass players definitely feel like they need to keep something up all the time in order right. to feel it. But I, I try to take, you know, a little rest once or twice a year just to, you know, for I, mental health. I'd be really interested to know this. When authors take a vacation, their brain doesn't stop. Mm. Things happen. Yeah. Ideas happen. Creativity goes on. Does that work? Does it work that way for you as a musician? Oh, totally. You need it to reset and to you know. Um, I I feel like the rest is just as important for the creative process as as the actual work. You know, that's how can you refill your 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 well or your resources if you don't take time to like look at the world around you and to just you know absorb new information. Anna Weber, you are a jazz musician, but you're also a composer. That's right. At the heart of jazz is that notion of improv and taking us in a direction we didn't necessarily see. And as a composer, that kind of creativity, I'm wondering whether the fact that you're a jazz musician makes filters into your compositions. And Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I write jazz, I write jazz music, but I, I probably notate my uh, jazz music, in quotes, uh, a lot more thoroughly than a lot of jazz musicians do. Um, but when you say notate, you mean write it down so that exactly, it yeah, the yeah. There's yeah. a lot more notes on the page for my music than for some other people's music. Why is that? Because that's the kind of music that I'm drawn to. But at the same time, having improvisation be central to that, and writing for improvisers who I expect and and hope will bring themselves to my music, you know, and and maybe play around with some of the ideas in ways that I that I. I couldn't envision while I was writing. That's super important to me. And I always have, um, I'm thinking of not just ways of, of writing stuff down on the page, but also of incorporating improvisation within a composition. So it's not a binary from this is fully written, this is fully improvised, but what are some ways that I could have something that's sort of partially improvised or partially written and, and allow the musicians to kind of fill in the gaps? I love yeah. unfair questions. Here's my unfair question. Okay. It's sort of like somebody asked me, do you self-identify as a parent or a spouse? You know, uh-huh. do you self-identify as a composer or as a musician? Oh, as as a composer and a musician. <laughs> yeah, told you it was a dumb question. <laughs> I would really want to hear more about improv in terms of the compositions that you create. 
when you write it down, do you have some idea what the improv will be? Or are you surprised at the directions it goes and how there is an infinite variety of potential in the base that you create for other musicians with this improvisation incorporated into your piece? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. I think my personal feeling as a composer is I have to know how it's going to pan out, you know, and often I build an improvisation into a composition with a narrative structure. So I know like, okay, the piece starts here, it goes here. The improvisation has this goal of bringing the energy from A to B, or, you know, that's just one example. But I, I love to be surprised by what musicians bring to it. And maybe that, that path can be a little bit more circuitous than I originally thought it might be. Um, so I, th I think I always go in with a plan and then I hope that those plans are somewhat overturned. And you're, you're hiring the best improvisers, the best musicians. Um, and I wonder if you talk a little bit about one of them, John Hollenbeck, who uh, was originally uh, a mentor of yours at mm -hmm. McGill University in Montreal. No, no uh, not at McGill. Oh, um, not at McGill. No, at uh, the Jazz Institute Berlin. Oh, okay. No, John moved to uh, Montreal after I'd already I left. I see. Yeah. Okay, thanks for that correction. Um, so th the idea of moving from a mentor mentee relationship to uh, a co-conspirator. Uh, how has that been? And what's it been like to work with John Hollenbeck, who's yeah, one I mean, of the great drummers and composers? I think John's one of my closest collaborators at this point. You know, I, I, he's been playing in my Simple Trio for, for it's now our 10th year. Um, but I also have played in his large ensemble, and I play in this new band that he has called George, which is a quartet. And we've played together in other projects um, here and there. And so at this point, you know, it, it feels very much like a, a, a really close musical relationship. And the, But it is true that at the beginning of our relationship, I, I was a student and learned so much about composition um, from him and especially these things that I'm talking about, incorporating improvisation within a composition. Um, so it's been a bit of a natural progression and, you know, a bit of a slow one from from the teacher-student relationship to sort of a co-conspirator relationship, as you put it. But it's it's been a very, very fruitful relationship and very important to me. Yeah, yeah. We are, uh, Glenn Siegel has once again brought us an incredible talent, Anna Weber, that we're speaking with on All That Jazz. We're going to take a break in just about two minutes. We'll be back, Glenn Siegel, and more. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank. With offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster. WHMP.
What's Cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Serving part-time in the Army National Guard has led to a lot of firsts for me. The education assistance I received made it possible for me to be the first person in my family to go to school and graduate debt-free. That education helped get me to the first day at my dream job, a job that I can still hold while I serve part-time. That job, plus the other benefits possible from the Army National Guard, helped me become a first-time homeowner. Also, part of my role as a National Guard soldier means I know that I can be one of the first to respond and help my community if disaster ever strikes. I'm extremely proud that I get to serve my community, and that first step I took by joining the Army National Guard has made all the difference in my life. Talk to your local recruiter or visit nationalguard.com to find out what firsts are available to you in the Army National Guard. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association and this station. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we are back talking all that jazz with Glenn Siegel and his award-winning, literally, uh, musician, composer, and flute player, <laughs> Anna Weber. Yeah, Anna, we were just talking during the break about uh, women in jazz, and certainly the landscape has changed, I would say, quite dramatically in the last even 10 to 15 years. But it's still somewhat uh, unusual to have uh, uh, a woman tenor player. I mean, I could name a bunch. In fact, Jazz Shares is presenting uh, a couple, Ingrid Labrock mm -hmm. in the next season, and uh a very young Zoe Amba, who's 23 years old. But uh, tell us about uh, coming up as a woman in, in jazz. I mean, were there obstacles? Were there uh, raised eyebrows? Well, I mean, maybe I'll talk less about that and more about just like, I think there's some very bizarre, anachronistic stereotypes that still persist, and that's why you see fewer women in jazz there's something about, you know, being in jazz school when you're 18 years old and you look around and it's mostly boys and everybody's 18 and somehow the boys feel like they are better at jazz because they are boys. And what in the world would possibly make, we're talking about like two people from my hometown of Kelowna, British Columbia, two white kids from Kelowna, British Columbia. What in the world would possibly make a male from Kelowna, British Columbia better than a female from Kelowna, British Columbia? <laughs> I mean, when you think about it in these terms, it's like, that's so bizarre, but somehow this is still part of the jazz, uh, you know, like mythology that, that somehow it's not for women. And really this is just coming from this like old-fashioned thing where women who stayed out at night were, you know, that was that was frowned upon and... Jazz musicians stayed out at night. Um, and then women were raising families and the men were out working. And it's just, but somehow it's persisted into this current age. And I do feel like it is changing and it's absolutely changing for the better. And I think that the younger generation now, you know, I'm not that old, but there's still a generation behind me. And they have a, a much more open and um, 
like equal playing field than than I did and I feel like my generation has a much more open and equal playing field than the generation above me um so I do feel like it's absolutely getting better but you know I uh, as I do some teaching and and spend time in universities I still see that the gender ratio is is pretty off balance Mm -hmm. um and it's bizarre I have you know I've had lots of conversations with people about that it's it's bizarre but you know I think at the end of the day like there's a couple more hurdles that women have to overcome. I think just because there's a lack of role models and mentorship. And I think that's something that I hope changes in the, mm-hmm. in the upcoming years. Yeah, no, I know Terry Lynn Carrington and uh, Chris Davis at Berkeley, which has been a male bastion for a long time are changing that at Berkeley mm-hmm. and starting a, you know, very intentional gender-based uh, program there. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of higher ed, you were just hired to be the co-chair of the jazz department at Boston's New England Conservatory of Music. That's right. One of the most prestigious music institutions in the country. Um, what will your duties be, and how do you think that will impact your performing career, if at all? Yeah, well, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um I yeah, so I'm going to be the co-chair of the jazz department at New England Conservatory, and I will be teaching, and I will be doing some like sort of overarching planning about like who do we bring in for guest artists, um, what direction does this department go in the upcoming years, and NEC is very very supportive of faculty who perform. That's one of the mandates that uh, Gunther Schuler had when he started, you know, the third stream program there in um, whenever that was. So it's it's important to the school that the teachers are actually out there playing. And so, you know, th- it was sold to me at least as, as please, we want you to be out there performing. Mm-hmm. But I've had in my life the great luck to have several mentors who've been very important to me um, through college and, and uh, the surroundings. And so I always wanted to be able to give back at a certain point in my life, so I'm looking forward to working with students. And Yeah. And, uh, and what's the gender breakdown at NEC? Any idea? You know, I haven't started interacting with the student body yet, but I can say it's uh, not atypical of jazz schools. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're talking yeah. with Anna Weber, and we're starting to wind down. Um, I mentioned a couple of uh, gigs you're doing through Pioneer Valley Jazz Shares. Any other local gigs that you have on the horizon? Uh, I think that might be it for my Western Massachusetts gigs coming up. Um, I have a Stone Week in New York City in September, so that's kind of the next big thing I'm looking tell for. Us what, tell us again when and where they are, the local ones you're the doing? The local ones. Yes. Uh, Glenn would know better than <laughs> me. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, in oct- late October, um, the 26th, I believe, uh, you're playing with Max uh, Johnson's trio. He's a fabulous bass player whom I met uh, playing with James Brandon Lewis's mm-hmm. quartet, uh, and Michael Serin is the drummer in that, and that's at the Blue Room in the Old Town Hall in East Hampton. Is there a website, Anna Weber, that people could go to if they want to look find your CDs or that yeah, sort of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. AnnaKristenWeber.com is my website, or if you just search for Anna Weber saxophone, you'll, you'll two, come up with two it. Two Bs in Weber. Two Bs in Weber, yeah. And I, I sell my music on Bandcamp, which is one of the best platforms for supporting artists the money actually goes to the artists in a different way than it does for almost any other platform online all right well thank you so much glenn for bringing yeah, it's here. my pleasure anna weber two b's or not two b's but <laughs> <laughs> two thank bees. you <laughs> listeners for joining us today and remember don't just talk the talk let's all walk the walk 
Thanks so much for having me. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles, or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were gonna buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. WHMP Northampton.